Well, we are continuing our exposition of Daniel chapter 7. We're going to not be there just yet. We're actually going to start in Deuteronomy 18, if you are itching to turn in some place in your Bible. But we're going to continue our exposition of Daniel 7, this great vision that God gave Daniel regarding the future of Gentile world empires. Remember, Daniel 1 through 6 was primarily a history of Daniel's time in Babylon with just a view of the high points, the defining moments of Daniel's life in Babylon in order, in the order in which they happened. But when we come to Daniel 7, Daniel records for us through the remainder of the book, chapter 7 through 12, basically four visions that God gave to him that are prophetic, they are prophecy. It is revelation from God regarding the times of the Gentiles. We spoke of this when we studied chapter 2 as well as last week when we started in on this uh, chapter 7. The times of the Gentiles began when Nebuchadnezzar overran Judah and the city of Jerusalem. Israel was never again a totally independent sovereign nation. Even after they returned to the land 70 years later. The Jews were dominated by Gentile nations for about 650 years, and then the Romans destroyed Jerusalem, and the Jewish people were scattered all over the world until just in recent times. Jesus was, or Jerusalem was, as Jesus put it rather, in in Luke 21-24, Jerusalem was going to be trampled by the Gentiles, Jesus said, until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And that certainly has been happening until just recent time. As we mentioned last week, God's prophetic clock has always been ticking. But God's prophetic clock became much more obvious to Bible students in 1948 when the nation of Israel once again declared itself a sovereign nation and reestablished their nation in their ancient homeland. And we began to see and understand more clearly the writings of the Old Testament prophets. It's it's happening just as God said it would. Now I must remind you, I know some of you probably are aware of this, but I must remind you that there are some students of the Bible, folks who know Jesus Christ as their Savior, we don't question their salvation in any way, but when they look at prophetic passages of Scripture, they don't accept it plainly. They, they, they tend to spiritualize the passages. They view it all as symbolism, as, as allegory. By allegory, we mean that everything represents something else. It, it, it's all symbolic to them. So they look at God's, God's promises to national Israel as symbolic rather than being real eternal promises. Uh, there are lots of people out there preaching those things. I want you to be aware of that. In this issue that we call eschatology, the doctrine of the last things, comes from a Greek word eschatos, means the last or the end. We have eschatology, uh, the, the doctrine of the last things in that issue. There are lots of opinions and lots of positions among people who truly know the Lord. Due to our time constraints, I can't really explain all of this to you in detail in this one sermon, other than to say that these folks have chosen a different way of interpreting God's promises. They interpret the Bible plainly and in a straightforward way in all of the non-prophetic passages, but when it comes to Bible prophecy, they kind of flip a switch and say it's all figurative, it's all symbolic, it's all allegory. So they look at the current existence of the, of the nation of Israel, and they say, oh, it's just an accident of history. It just happens to have happened at this time in history. To them, it doesn't mean anything prophetic at all. 
Of course, you know that I hold a very different position because I try to apply the same straightforward, plain method of interpretation to the entire Bible, even to prophetic passages. If something is figurative, and there are things that are figurative or symbolic, uh, certainly there are, uh, but then we study to discern what it represents. Quite often the Bible tells you what it represents. Jesus in, in, in his parables gave lots of figurative language, and there's an enormous amount of time that he actually explained to the disciples what he was talking about. And so we don't have to guess at much of the figurative symbolic language. We can see how it's used all over the Bible and we can discern what it represents. There is obvious figurative language here in Daniel's vision in chapter 7 of Daniel, but God's promises are very real and God's word is meant to be understood. So we labor in the word with the confidence that God meant what he said and his word is understandable to those who are willing to study I believe God's promises to the nation of Israel are real, and they will come to pass. And as I say, while there's a lot of figurative language in Daniel 7, the kingdoms and the events that are described here are real kingdoms and real events, and it really, Daniel 7 should be a wonderful, encouraging overview of the world's history, as well as a challenging look at what I believe will occur in the near future. And remember, when Daniel wrote down this vision, 95% of this information was, was prophetic. It was future. Now, 2,500 years later, almost 90% of it is history. It's already happened. And we are watching the unfolding of the rest of this great prophecy. Daniel wrote with, with, with great confidence. He knew that what he was seeing and what he was receiving was from the Lord. He also knew that 100% accuracy was required if you were going to say something was from, was from the Lord. If I was going to stand up and say, the Lord has told me that I should tell you this. Well, look at Deuteronomy chapter 18. Because this certainly isn't the first time that's happened. And there are lots of false prophets around today. But look at Deuteronomy chapter 18. I want to read you just, just a couple of verses here. Deuteronomy 18. We're going to start to read in verse 20. In verse 20. Verse 20 to 22. Just those short verses. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the names of other gods, that prophet shall die. He's to be executed. And if you say in your heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? This is how. When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. In other words, fulfilled prophecy was not only the proof that God's word is true, but it was the proof that the prophet speaking it was, was correct. And, and God told the children of Israel through, through Moses, some guy rises up and says, the Lord has told me this. He said, if it doesn't happen, kill him. Because he's lying to you. Because if it doesn't happen, I didn't say it. Because God's, God's standard was 100% accuracy. Quite a bit different from modern day so-called prophets who claim God told them this or God told them that or God said they should do this or God said they should do that. Actually, what the prophets do today is God told me to tell you to do this. Daniel wrote down this vision with total confidence that this was the word of the Lord. 
And as we said last week, the greatest proof that the Bible is the Word of God is the fulfillment of prophecy. Predictive prophecy, as we call it, foretelling the future, requires omniscience and omnipotence. You have to know everything, and you have to control everything. You say it's going to happen, then you make it happen. And nobody but God can do that. There are false predictors all over the place. Pastor John MacArthur, the many of you are well aware of, of his name, he tells the story many years ago of a friend of his, long time, probably 30, 40 years ago. The guy, a friend was here, was nearly blind, very thick glasses, and this fellow many years ago went into a very large drugstore in the city of Philadelphia. And he noticed as he came in that there was a psychic over there in the corner with a table set up and, and people were plunking down money on the table and the psychic was telling them their futures and their fortunes and so forth. Well, he knew the Lord as his Savior. He thought he would just give a little test over here. So he kind of pushed his way through the crowd. Everybody let him through. He's got thick glasses. He looked like he's mostly blind. So people just kind of let him through. They probably thought, oh, the little blind guy wants to find out his fortune. He gets up to her table. He says, excuse me, ma'am. Do you know where the Kleenex is? <laughs> she looked at him kind of rather annoyed with the interruption. Said, mister, I do not work at this drugstore and I don't know where the Kleenex is. He said, well then, how come you say you know so much about everybody's future, but you don't know where the Kleenex is? <laughs> False prophets are everywhere. And once in a while, they may accidentally get something right. But as the old saying goes, even a broken clock is right twice a day for one minute. You see, only, only God predicts the future with 100% accuracy. Every time. Because He's all-knowing, He's all-powerful, He's eternal. Now I quoted to you last week a wonderful passage from Isaiah 46. I'd like to read with you today a passage from Isaiah 45, if you will turn there. And believe it or not, we are actually working our way to Daniel 7. We're almost there. Isaiah 45, verses 18 to 22. Another incredible, wonderful, wonderful passage. Isaiah 45, verses 18 through 22. For thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, who is God who formed the earth and made it, who has established it, who did not create it in vain, who formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. I have spoken, I have not spoken in secret in a dark place of the earth. I did not say to the seed of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak righteousness. I declare things that are right. Assemble yourselves and come, draw near together. He's talking about all the nations of the world here if you look at the greater context. You who have escaped from the nations, they have no knowledge who carry the wood of their carved image and pray to a God that cannot save. In other words, they have this little carved wooden statue of a God that they're praying to, and when they get ready to do it, they pick it up and put it under their arm and they walk away. And Isaiah, speaking to the Lord, saying, does that, does that really make sense? I mean, here's this little statue that you can pick up and carry around with you, and you're going to pray to that and, and think it can actually do something? He says, they have no knowledge. They carry the wood of their carved image and pray to a God that cannot save. 
tell and bring forth your case. Yes, let them take counsel together there in verse 24. Who has declared this from ancient time? Who has told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? There is no other God besides me, a just God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Look unto me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. God's entire evangelistic challenge here in verse 22, where he calls out at the end of verse 21, there's no other God besides me, a just God and a Savior. Look unto me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. I am God and there is no other. That whole evangelistic challenge is based on fulfilled prophecy. The call and the challenge of verse 22, to humble yourself before the Lord and come to Him for salvation because He is the only God and Savior, because He has proved that He's declared from ancient times things that hadn't happened yet. He said, who has declared this from ancient time in verse 21? Who has told it from that time? And I'll tell you the context there in just a second. But God says, can any false God do that? He says, of course not. I am God, there is no other. Fulfilled prophecy proves it. So come to me, he says, because I am your only hope. And in the greater context of these verses, if you looked back at the early part of chapter 45 and, the, and back into chapter 44, in the, the greater context of these verses, God is speaking of Israel's coming captivity in Babylon. He, he names Babylon. He talks about Cyrus the Persian, who, who he calls by name, who is going to be the one to let them go back to Jerusalem at the end of the 70 years. And you know the fascinating thing is, when God told Isaiah to write this, neither Nebuchadnezzar nor Cyrus had even been born yet. The Babylonians were nowhere near being a world power, much less the Persians. We don't know the precise year of Isaiah's death, but we know he died at least 75 years before the Babylonians captured Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar and Cyrus weren't even alive. And so when he says there in verse 21, who has declared this from ancient times? Who has told it from that time? He's referring back earlier passages there in chapter 44 and chapter 45, where he names Babylon and he names Cyrus the Persian. And he says, they're my servants and they're going to do my will. And yet those men hadn't even been born yet. And yet God says that, that the Babylonians are going to carry you away as captives. And Cyrus the Persian is going to let you come back. 150 years before it ever happened. The God of the Bible is the true and living God. He knows the future. He is the only God. So he says, look unto me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. I am God and there is no other. Who else can tell you the people's names who are going to be the kings in a kingdom that doesn't even exist now? And I can tell you what he's going to do 150 years from now. Who else can do that, God says? Nobody. I am God, there is no other. I am your only hope. So look to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. I am God, there is no other. Now to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. Last week we saw the crowning of the king. The son of man, Jesus Christ is going to receive an everlasting kingdom from God the Father, the Ancient of Days, as Daniel called it here. And all who are His saints, 
who have been made holy by faith in Jesus Christ, they are going to possess the kingdom with him forever and ever. Hallelujah. So what will the kingdom of the Son of Man be like? I told you we're going to divide our study into the crowning of the king and the qualities. We're going to call them this week the descriptions of the kingdom. And then next week we'll look at the timing of the kingdom. So what will the kingdom of the Son of Man be like? What are, the, what are the qualities of His kingdom? What is it going to be like when the king sets up His kingdom? There are, we see four descriptions of the coming kingdom of Jesus Christ, and we're going to develop all of these thoughts from verse 14 of Daniel 7. We're going to use four words to describe this incredible kingdom. Let's read it together if you would. You can follow along as I read verse 13 and 14, the, the core of what we looked at last week as far as the kingdom coming. Look at the description of the kingdom. Daniel 7, verse 13 and 14. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, as we see as God the Father. We know the Son of Man is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what He called Himself all throughout the Gospels. And they brought him near to him. They bring the Son of Man near to the Ancient of Days. We talked about this, Revelation 4 and 5 last week, that great unfolding of that, of that, great, that great day. And then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and the kingdom, his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. The first word is this, authority. Verse 14 says, there was given to him dominion. That means ruling authority. When Christ takes his kingdom, he will have absolute authority. The kingdom of the Lord Jesus will be what we call a theocracy. The rule by God. Jesus Christ will have absolute authority, but that's okay because he's perfect. He's not stained by sin. So everything he does will always be righteous. There'll be no voting in his kingdom, no democracy, no, no human opinion to deal with to try to convince somebody to vote a certain way. All authority is going to rest in Jesus Christ. Everything will come under his authority. He will reign supreme. You see that repeated in verse 27 of the chapter when it says, Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. So Jesus Christ is going to totally reign supreme. And remember at the very beginning of the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 18, Jesus said, All authority is given to me in heaven and in earth. Go therefore and make disciples. Matthew 28, 18. All authority is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Jesus will totally exert that authority and he will rule the world. In Revelation 19, the Apostle John records one aspect of the return of Christ right at the end of the Great Tribulation, after he's judged the earth, right before he sets up his kingdom. I'm going to read it to you. If you'd like to turn there, you can. It's Revelation 19, and it's verses 11 through 16. You can either listen, or you can turn to it and follow along as I read. This is right at the end of the Tribulation. Jesus Christ is about to set up his thousand-year reign on the earth. Revelation 19.11 says, I saw, a, saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. 
His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You visualize that in your mind, and again, that'll put a chill down your back. You see Jesus Christ riding on a white horse, looks like his robe he's wearing has been dipped in blood. He's called the Word of God. He's called faithful and true. He's got this sash going across that says King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And he with a sword going out of his mouth, he's about to destroy all of the armies of the Antichrist, if you read on through the rest of the chapter, and he's going to set up his kingdom on the earth. He has all authority, as Daniel 7 said, to him was given dominion, authority. The the second descriptive word regarding Christ's kingdom is honor. Back in Daniel 7, he says dominion and glory, the Hebrew word there translated in our English Bible, glory, simply means honor or majesty. In his kingdom, he's going to be honored. He's going to be glorified. Not only will he have the power to rule and the authority to rule, but he will also have honor from those that he rules. You know, there are plenty of dictators around today who don't have the honor of their people. Plenty of dictators around today who are hated by the people that they are ruling because of their selfish injustice and their overbearing domination. But in Jesus' kingdom... The hearts of men are going to honor him. Christ's rule is going to be perfect and just and righteous. He's going to be honored for what he is doing as the king. The Apostle Paul, when he was challenging Timothy at the very end of his first letter to him, 1 Timothy 6.14, he has challenged Timothy to fight the good fight of faith until, he says, our Lord Jesus Christ's appearing, which he will reveal in his own time. He says, Jesus Christ is the blessed and only potentate. The word simply means a ruler with great power. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. That's quite a benediction, a closing challenge as Paul winds up his letter to Timothy, that first letter. He says, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, to whom be honor and everlasting power. You see, we live in a day when Jesus Christ is generally not honored. He's quite often totally dishonored. But there will be a day when he is honored in the way that he is worthy to be honored. So we see authority in Christ's kingdom. We see honor in Christ's kingdom. The third descriptive word regarding Christ's kingdom, it will be worldwide. Notice the word kingdom there in verse 14. Was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. You see the same thing in verse, in verse 18. And he says, The saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom. The word kingdom is, is, a, is, is a word that speaks of the structure of government. Jesus Christ will have a structured government. 
It'll be a kingdom in every normal sense of the word. In other words, and, and this is very important, the, the kingdom is not simply some spiritual entity. A lot of people today talking about the coming kingdom of Christ, they say, well, the kingdom is just, it's just the rule of Christ in the hearts of believers. It's just kind of a spiritual thing. I am convinced in the context of Daniel, uh, is a, there's a series of statements about how the earth will literally be ruled. There's going to be four Gentile world powers, talked about them in chapter 2, we'll talk about them more next week. There'll be four Gentile world powers, and then comes the kingdom of Christ. And I believe the context demands an earthly, literal kingdom of Christ. Even more than just the kingdom on earth, the kingdom, he says, is going to be eternal. The first phase of the kingdom is going to be the thousand-year reign of Christ that we call the millennium. The Latin word just means thousand years. The contrast you see in all these visions of Daniel is between the earthly empires of men and the earthly kingdom of Christ. Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome were real earthly kingdoms. And it would make no interpretational sense to think that man's empires were literal earthly kingdoms, but the last one is only spiritual. I believe we're going to see a literal, real earthly kingdom ruled by Jesus Christ, and I believe that is precisely what the Spirit of God promises us throughout the Scripture. Remember in Romans, or sorry, in Revelation chapter 12, John says, I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who'd been beheaded for the witness of Jesus during the tribulation period, and for the word of God, they had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark on their foreheads or in their hands. And he says, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. It's a real, literal, earthly kingdom. Back in chapter 7 of Daniel, verse 14, he says that he was given dominion and glory in a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Interesting wording. Three different distinctions. Peoples, those are, pe those are groups connected by geography. They live in the same place. Nations, that's a group that's connected by ethnicity, by what their ethnic background is. Languages, a group of people connected by a common language. So he says, everybody in the whole world is going to serve him. Whether you're connected by geography, whether you're connected by your ethnic background, whether you're connected by a common language that you speak, he says, all will serve him. And we could go on and on for hours dis discussing the kingdom. The Old Testament prophets wrote about it quite a bit. The Messiah, he says, is going to reverse the, much of the curse of sin on creation. Hosea is kind of an interesting passage in Hosea 2. He even speaks of God making a covenant <clears throat> between Israel and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the creeping things on the ground. thought as I read that, life, life's even going to be better for the beasts, the birds, and the bugs when Jesus Christ rules this planet. And incredible things will happen. I'm sure my wife would not be interested in making any kind of a covenant with a bug. But, uh, but God says, I'm going to make a covenant with the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and all the creeping things on the ground, all the bugs, and the lizards, and the snails, and the snakes. And I'm going to, I'm going to change this planet. Incredible things are going to happen.
But the fourth and the last descriptive word regarding the kingdom is simply everlasting. Everlasting. Again, we have interesting wording with three distinctions. He says his dominion is an everlasting dominion. Means it's never going to end. That's what everlasting means. It will never end. Then he says the next phrase, which shall not pass away, means it's never going to get canceled or removed from its position. And then he said his kingdom will be the one which shall not be destroyed. That is, it's never going to be overthrown. It's never going to fade away. It's never going to deteriorate. It's never going to crumble. Four wonderful descriptive words about the kingdom. Authority. Honor. Worldwide. Everlasting. What a blessing. What, what an encouragement. How exciting to think of our future in Jesus Christ. We have, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have, you have an incredible future in Jesus Christ. It's going to be marvelous. It's going to be beyond what we can even imagine. The kingdom of God on this earth, and we get to rule and reign with Him for a thousand years, and He's going to change the whole planet, and it's going to be like Garden of Eden stuff all over again. And we'll get to be there and be a part of it if we know Jesus Christ as our Savior. Man, alive. That ought to make your food set real good when you eat lunch today. I'll be feeling great. And if you did not make note of verse 18 last week, or even if you did, I'd like to end again on that thought, if you would. What a marvelous, powerful, beautiful verse. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom, and not just receive it, and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. Don't you love that? If if you miss the first forever then you don't miss the even forever and ever. You're going to possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. Who are the saints, as we talked about last week? The holy ones who belong to the Most High, a beautiful Old Testament name for the true and living God. The term holy ones throughout the Old Testament is is applied to angels. It's applied to those people in the Old Testament who followed the Lord. Saints include we who have come to Christ for salvation in this current age of the church. It includes the martyrs of the coming tribulation. It includes everybody who has been redeemed by the blood of Christ. Everybody who has been given the righteousness of Christ through faith. We are all going to be there, all the saints of all the ages in the eternal kingdom of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. What a glorious and absolutely thrilling thing to think about. The question, of course, is, are you sure that you're going to be there? Can you insert your name into Ephesians 2, 8, and 9? For by grace I have been saved through faith. It is not from myself, it is the gift of God, not of my works, so that I can never brag about how good I was to enable me to get there. Or Titus 3, 5, can you put your name in that verse? Not by works of righteousness that I have done, but according to His mercy, He saved me. Are are, are you rock solid sure you are going to be there? The saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever.
Make sure that you will be there. Let's pray. Lord, we see and read many things throughout the prophets that tell us a lot about what the kingdom is going to be like. What a glorious and incredible place it's going to be. And yet, Lord, we know that as the book of 1 Corinthians tells us, eye has not seen nor ear heard nor has entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love him. So, Lord, I just pray that you will encourage our hearts with these thoughts as we think about this this wonderful, incredible, glorious kingdom of God where Jesus Christ will rule with absolute authority. He will be honored for who he is and what he's done. It'll be worldwide. Everyone on this planet will be worshiping and serving the Lord Jesus Christ. And it will be everlasting. And we who know you as our Savior get to be a part of that. What an amazing, amazing picture of the grace of God to undeserving sinners. Thank you, Lord, for all that you are, all that you do, all that you are going to do that we haven't even begun to totally realize what a joy it is and a thrill to know Jesus Christ as our Savior. We pray, Lord, that each person here today will make certain that they are ready for the kingdom. They are ready for the return of the Son of Man coming in the clouds with power and glory. And Lord, we pray for those whom we love. Pray that we might be able to share and express the gospel to them. I pray that the Spirit of God would open their hearts. I pray that they would bow in submission before Jesus Christ and they would be ready for the coming King of Kings and Lord of Lords. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.